Pastor Ray to share with you. So would you fix your eyes on the screen and we'll go from there. Well, good evening, Hope Bible Church. Pastor Ray here. Love you so much and so thankful for each and every one of you. And even though I can't be there in person right now, myself and Natalie and our boys, we are praying for you right now as you come together to lift up the name of Jesus in worship and call on his name in prayer and now come under the preaching of his word. Go, Lord. Amen. It's never just another Saturday. Come on, Lord. Do a great work among us. Well, right now, I have the privilege of introducing to you your guest preacher this evening, and he is a dear friend and mentor of mine. Uh, he's no stranger to our church. He's preached here a number of times. His name is Ted Duncan, and Ted is the senior pastor of Hope Church in Mississauga, where I had the privilege, when it was located in Brampton, uh, I had the privilege of serving on staff with Ted for three years. And where does the time go? It's already been 10 years of gospel ministry side by side for the greatest mission of all time. Praise the Lord. What a gift from the Lord. And so he and his wife, Lindsay, are here, along with their four incredible kids. Yeah, that's right. I'm talking to you boys. Jet, Ezra, Abel, Boaz, love y'all so much. And uh, loved ones, let's keep them in prayer. Let's keep their family in prayer. Let's keep Hope Church Mississauga in prayer. Let's pray for an increasing perseverance of the saints in these days, an increasing unity in the church, an increasing love for the Lord, an increasing love uh, for one another, and that Jesus Christ would continue to draw men, women, and children from all over the place to continue to advance his kingdom for his glory. Lord, do an increasing saving and sanctifying work among them. Amen. All right, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as Pastor Ted comes up right now, let's give him a warm Hope Ottawa welcome. All right. Good evening, Hope Bible Church Ottawa. So thankful to uh, be here today. Uh, I brought my Bible with me here. If you left yours at home or don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now, and they're going to put a Bible in your hands if you need one. And I'm just going to move this off to the side. I'm not much of a lectern guy. And um, so thankful for the opportunity to be here. We love this church and so thankful for the chance to be back here. We love Ray and Natalie and their kids and uh, uh, we had such a great time uh, serving together uh, in the city of Brampton, and it's always great to come. Uh, we tend to cover for one another. We've we got to figure this out where we can actually spend some time uh, with them while, we are, while we're here. So Ray is preaching at, at our church in Mississauga uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, I, want, I want you to do a little bit of a thought experiment, uh, if you could. Um, can you think of a time when you were without power. I don't know, like, can you just sort of, you know, in your memory, you know, just a moment where the lights went out and, you know, stayed out. Can, can anyone, Ottawa, anyone, can any of you think of a time like that? It happened for us in Brampton and Mississauga and Milton, the people from our church. It happened for us for a couple of hours. It took about 10 days to get power back at our church. Um, uh, in, the, uh, in the building, and uh, so we were praying about that, and God answered our, our prayers. But you guys, you know, very recently, you, you know what that's like, right? You know what it's like for the lights to go out, uh, for there to be no power. 
Um, it's hard for the power to go out in our day and age uh, and not notice. It's, it's kind of right in front of you because we, we, we rely on electricity and just about everything that we do. Life can't continue on. Everything kind of has to stop and you have to sort of figure things. We got we to gotta figure out how to get the power back in order to have life back. And church is like that too. Uh, Jesus warned in the book of Revelation, like, hey, churches, he, he talked to these seven churches. He said, listen, if you guys don't knock it off, like, I'm going to take your, your lampstand. I'm going I'm to turn the lights out. I'm going to turn the power off. And uh, at our church, we've been going through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. And the church at Corinth, they thought they had all kinds of power. They, they were this super influential city. You couldn't travel anywhere in the Roman world without getting through Corinth. And uh, there, were these, there were these two harbors on either side. Corinth was on this tiny little strip of land, and everyone traveled by boat. And, you, uh, and rather than going down into the Mediterranean, you stopped off in Corinth, and they actually had these giant skateboards. They would pick your boat up out of the water, and they'd roll it along the land while you, you know, spent a couple of nights in a hotel or a brothel or uh, went to worship a, uh, a, 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 um, a god at the time, which is basically like going to a brothel. And it, Corinthians was, a, the, the city of Corinth was, was a lot like Las Vegas. And, but it was sort of like Las Vegas mixed with like Chicago O'Hare Airport. Everyone kind of had to go through there. It was a hub, and it was a hub of religious activity. It was a hub of, of, of cultural activity. They had their own version of the Olympic, uh, the Olympic Games called the Isthmian Games. And uh, it happened every uh, four or five years as well, offset with picture like, you know, Euro Cup and World Cup, kind of offset from the, uh, from the Olympics. It was a happening city. And in Corinth... They had all of these uh, philosophers uh, coming through town, and the church sort of took on the shape of Greco-Roman philosophy. Not only that, remember how in Acts chapter 2, when people started speaking in different languages, and everyone started coming to follow Jesus and, and believe in him in that amazing moment on the day of Pentecost? Well, in Corinth, they were having this similar experience where people were speaking in other languages, whether it was tongues of angels or, or, or other actual languages on earth. And, and their services were full of this sort of dramatic expression of the power they thought was the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they had all these eloquent speakers. They had the wisdom of the world. They had all the finest pieces of culture and, and all of the influences of the world around them. They even had this crazy speaking in tongues things ha happening. They thought they had the power. And Paul has to write this letter and said, I'm sorry, guys, like the power's out. You guys have been going on like, like you have it going on, but the lights are not on. And so if you look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, look at verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The, 
the Corinthian church was trying to sort of have the signs, the tongues, the, the, the manifestation of the Spirit. They thought, well, the, the Jewish people will, will come to faith. And they, they tried to have the wisdom of the Greco-Roman uh, history of philosophy and eloquence. And they thought, well, all the, all the non-Jewish Gentiles will come to faith. And our church is powerful because we have all of this going on. Paul says, listen, the power has gone out because you guys are not preaching Christ and him crucified. And so Paul here is warning them. He's letting them know, where did the disconnection start? Last fall, uh, you know, six weeks or so before Christmas, uh, the boys were outside playing street hockey, which is normal uh, for us. And I thought, oh, I'm going to put up the Christmas lights. You know, it was an unseasonably a warm day. And, and so Lindsay was helping me. I was up on the ladder. I'm cleaning out the gutters as I go. And everything's going super well. Normally, I wait too long to put up my Christmas lights. I got to wear gloves. It's like freezing cold. But this is like everything's going so well. I put all the Christmas lights up. And normally, I don't measure it properly so that I get like halfway around my house and I have no, uh, no, uh, no lights left. But everything was great. And I've plugged the lights in, grabbed my hockey stick, went out into the street, and then one of the neighbors was like, only half your lights are on. And I'm like, no, no, I just put them up. I just plugged them in. I bought the lights last year. Like, all the lights are on for sure, right? And it wasn't that, like, they were unplugged in the middle because it was one big, long strip. So here's a little bit of a tip. If you don't own a home yet and haven't done the Christmas light things, before you get up on a ladder, make sure the lights work first. Because somewhere along the line, there was like a, like a disconnect. And I couldn't, do any, I couldn't do anything about it. That somewhere along the line, the flow of power had stopped. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. The Apostle Paul moved to Corinth. He lived there. He made tents. He was a bivocational pastor. He was, uh, he's, he's making tents. He's preaching the gospel. There was power there in Corinth. They're meeting in a synagogue. They get kicked out of a synagogue. They move next door. And, uh, and then the, the guy who kicked them out of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, ends up getting saved. And God does some amazing things there. They're persecuted for sure. Paul wants to leave. Paul says, no, stay. I have many people in this city. Then Paul leaves. A new guy named Apollos moves there. He becomes their pastor. It started with power, but somewhere along the lines, they got disconnected. And so when we come to uh, chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, where we find ourselves today, Paul is is going to point out really three areas where things started to get off the rails. Let me read you the the text here. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they should be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I'm thankful for the prayers that we've already uh, prayed. Let me uh, pray for us now just as we dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, we've lifted our voices to you, and now we want to hear your voice speaking through your word. And so, God, I pray that as a guest here uh, um, around the table with this family, ready to, ready to feast on your word, I pray, God, that I would fade very quickly into the background, that you would be at the forefront and only that which is of sound doctrine, which is that which is nourishing, that which can be metabolized to produce growth and strength for the body of Christ, to, to, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, not just simply uh, receive what you're saying to us in this text, but to, but to live it out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's, there's three prohibitions that uh, Paul outlines in this passage. There's really, there's five imperatives, five commands, but three of them are negative, and that's what's going to sort of form our outline today. Notice in verse one, let no one deceive himself. That's, that's a prohibition. Then look at verse uh, 21. It says, let no one boast in men. And then look down at verse five. It says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. So Paul's concerned, let no one deceive themselves. And then he's, he's concerned, let no one boast in men. And then he says, let no one pronounce judgment before the time. This is how things started to fall apart. This is how the power went off at the church in Corinth. And Paul's trying to get the power back on for them. So here's the first thing Paul is warning them against. This is one way to, to stop the flow of power of the Holy Spirit in your church is if you're not careful to heed this warning. Paul's warning is this, don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. But notice what, what Paul says here in, in verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. I mean, we all know, right, not to respond to the email from the Nigerian prince who wants to, to wire you some money, right? We all know that. We don't respond to that. We all know not to panic when like a computerized voice from the CRA calls and says that they owe, you owe them a lot of money. We know not to fall for those, those scams. We know not to be deceived, but the real deceiver like lives within, and we can deceive ourselves into thinking that if we just live in accordance with the world, if we compromise in this way, and we can create these convoluted logic diagrams of how, because this and then, then, then and that, it doesn't really matter. We know what we want the answer to be. And so we just create this equation to, to rationalize in our mind why we can compromise or why we can live in a way that's contrary to God's word. We can deceive ourselves. Paul says in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I don't have time to refer to everything he's, he's said so far, but he's contrasting worldly wisdom with the wisdom of God. 
And Paul is saying, if you think you're wise in accordance with this age, he says, you need to become a fool because God's wisdom is considered folly in this world. And God is so wise that even the wisest philosophers in our world today are as fools before him. He's saying in verse 18, admit how little you know so that you can really start learning something. Who are the hardest people to teach in the world? The hardest people to teach are the people who think they don't need to learn anything, right? Because they don't listen to you and all they do is they wait for you to stop talking because then they they want their turn to start talking because they don't want to learn anything from you. They just want to teach others. Paul says, no, you got to become a fool. You got to be ready to learn. You got to come with a posture of humility and not think that you've got it all figured out. Then he uses the Bible to back up what he's saying. Verse 19, for, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. This is a quote from the book of Job chapter 5, verse 13. This was spoken by one of Job's friends. His name was Eliphaz. Now, uh, Job went through this immense time of suffering, this very confusing time. His loved ones were dying. His business fell apart. His, his body is decaying with disease. And, and three of Job's friends come, and for seven days they sit with him, and they mourn, and they cry, and they fast, and they say nothing. That's what we do when people suffer. We just be present with them. We don't have to have answers for them. We just have to be there for them. Honestly, if the book of Job were like two, two chapters long, it would be like the best handbook for how to care for people when they're suffering. But Eliphaz and the other friends of Job, they stopped from focusing on just being present to now being preachers. And they started to try to come up with explanations as to why is Job going through all of this kind of suffering? And they started to point the finger, rather than lifting eyes up to God, they started to point the finger at Job and said, well, there's some, there's some things that you have been doing. So in Job chapter 5, verse 13, Eliphaz says that the Lord knows the thoughts, sorry, the, the, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Now, Eliphaz is right about God, but he's wrong about Job. God does catch the wise and their craftiness. He does see through our logic diagrams and the equations that we come up to make excuses for our sin and our comrade. He sees through all of that. He's wiser than the wise. He sees through their craftiness. So Eliphaz was right about God. That's why Paul quotes him. But Eliphaz was right about God, but he was wrong about Job. Job was not being crafty. Job, so, so that's why Paul is quoting him. He's right about God, but he's wrong about Job. And then he makes another quote from, uh, from Psalm 94, verse 11. That's there in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 3. It says, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, that they're like a breath, that they come and they go. This morning at breakfast, my son Abel was eating some frozen fruit and he was sitting right in front of the window and he became a fire-breathing dragon because the, I don't know what the science behind it is, but because he had cold frozen fruit in his mouth and warm air and the sunlight beaming in when he breathed, like this puff of smoke came out. It was sort of like, you know, going outside in winter. 
And when, when, when God's word says in Psalm 94 that he knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile, it's like that they're, they, they last as long as he's still not breathing fire now. He was breathing fire this morning, but even this morning, as soon as it came out, it was gone. And so God knows that the wisdom of this world comes and it goes. Now in Corinth, they were heavily influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy. I can't get into that, but you know, we studied some of this in, in college or university or high school, Plato, Aristotle, all of these different systems. A, a, a system is like a box in which you, 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 you put boundaries around the world. This is how the world works. And God says, no, no, it's futile. You, because the way the world works is the way that God made it work. And so you can't put a box around God. It's, it's futile. And every, every few centuries, every few decades, and in our generation, every few minutes, someone comes up with a new box to explain how the world works. And well-meaning Christians, every time there's a new box that's made, well-meaning Christians try to cram the Bible, cram the gospel, cram God into a box. But you can't fit God in a box. So we don't necessarily talk a whole lot about Aristotle or Plato or, or Greek or Roman philosophers, although they heavily influence the way that we think today. But think about some of the philosophies in our world. There's, there's the secular humanist evolutionary biology sort of approach to the world. It's a box of explaining where we come from and where we're going and what life is about and what everything means, and it fits nice into a box. And well-meaning Christians try to take the book of Genesis and the rest of the teaching of the Bible. They try to cram it into, it won't fit in the box. That is, that is worldly wisdom. You move away from the, you know, the science department of the university, you head over to the English department or the sociology department, and there's a box that explains uh, oppression and justice and, and all of the, and there, there's an explanation of why things are the way that they are and how to make them right. And then there's a box. And again, well-meaning Christians are, are trying to say, oh, I, I know a couple of verses that I can, that, that sort of fit with that. I can cram that into the, it doesn't fit in the box. Or again, in our world, there's a box that talks about expressive individualism and sexuality and gender and how all of these things interplay with one another. And, and it's a box, and, and many well-meaning Christians are saying, well, we, we need to get the Bible to fit it. So we need to tear out some pages, actually, of the Bible in order to, to make some more room to fit it into. It's not going to fit in the box. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. We, God is our king. We do what the king says. We don't do whatever, what, what the prevailing philosophy of our, what happens to be trending on, on, on Twitter at, at, at the moment. We're, we're doing what God says. We're not going to be deceived by, by worldly wisdom. And of course, these worldly philosophers, they all had faces, they all had names, they all had these celebrity teachers that were attached to these different ways of explaining the world. And Corinth was not only buying into the philosophies, but they were also buying into this whole celebrity culture. Who are you following? Who are you influenced by? What camp are you in. That leads us to the, to the next point. So number one is don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. And number two, don't divide over Christian leaders. 
don't divide over Christian leaders. Look at verse 21. So let no one boast in men. Don't boast in men, he says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. He's saying, don't boast in men. The the church in Corinth was totally divided into these camps. Notice the the names are listed there. Apoll, Apollos, and Cephas. That's just another name for Peter. That guy's had too many names, right? Like Simon and Peter and Cephas. Like, how, how can we keep this guy... Uh, this guy straight. I remember going to a Nigerian baby dedication once, and the baby, the baby had like eleven names or something like that. And uh, and and, but Peter had a, had a lot of names. But Paul and Apollos and and Cephas or Peter. Look with me at chapter one and verse twelve. Paul says, "What what I mean is, each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ.'" Verse thirteen: Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? They were divided into these these groups. You had the Paul group and the Peter group and the Apollos group. You even had this Christ group. See, there were some people who were were saying, you know what? We follow Paul. We were there in those early days in Acts chapter 18. I bought a tent that Paul made because he was a tent maker. And I remember the day we got kicked out of the synagogue and Paul walked out of the synagogue and went right next door. I followed him into the next door. I was there. So I follow Paul. Then other people, they really liked Apollos in Acts chapter 18 when Paul leaves Corinth. Apollos moves there next. And so he became their pastor, and Apollos was known for being super eloquent. And he kind of fit in with Corinthian culture because he could go toe-to-toe with the philosophers. And and so he sounded like, like the eloquent rulers of the world at that time. So some people really were into Apollos. Other people, they were they were like into into, into Peter. I mean, he was, he, was, he was the OG of the OGs, right? Because like Acts chapter two, talk about an influential ministry. I mean, like he, he preaches, 3,000 people get saved. Some people maybe immigrated to Corinth and they, they were there back in Pentecost. And they're like, no, no, no. You think you're original because you, you, you follow Paul or Apollos. No, I, I take it back to Peter. And then still others were like, no, no, no. We go all the way back to Jesus. We've been following. We were there at the Sermon on the Mount. We actually ate, you know, we were one of the 5,000 that ate the bread. And everyone was, just like in our world today, right? People are always saying, you can't speak about this because I have a, I have a, a particular thing that, that means that I can speak with more authority over, over you. We start talking over one another, right? We start competing with one another about who has the right to speak. That's what was happening in Corinth. The Apollos people were trying to talk and they got cut off. No, 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 no. We were here before Apollos with Paul. And then the Peter people were like, no, you got to listen to us. And then, of course, the Jesus people, that was like the trump card. Like, you can't, you can't, argue, with, can't argue with that. I mean, who, who's going to argue with Jesus, right? And then, so Paul says, listen, all, all things are yours. And the list starts off kind of predictably because he's been talking about this a couple of times. Even in chapter, chapter 3, he's talking about Apollos and, and Paul. It, it, it keeps coming up. But look at the list. He says, verse 22, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos. And then it gets kind of out of control. Or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. What? what? 
How did we get from like three Christian leaders in the, in the Roman era? How did we get from there to the world and life and death and the future? Like what on earth, Paul? But he's saying, he's saying, keep reading. He says, all are yours, verse 23, and you are Christ's and Christ is God. Or Christ is God's. So let, let, me, let, you, let me just sort of explain to you how Paul got here. Christ is God's. He's God's son. The son belongs to the father. The son inherits all that belongs to the father. The son owns all that the father owns because the son is the father's. The son belongs to the father. Christ belongs to God. And Christ purchased us with with his blood. We now belong to Christ. Christ came to this earth as God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned once. He lived a life that none of us could live. And then he went and he died the death that all of us deserve to die. And if he hears the fundamental truth of the gospel, we would sing about it. We would sing about it. Jesus crucified, raised to life. Lift him high, lift him high. You see, here's the, here's the beauty of the gospel. That on the cross, Jesus was treated the way that you and I deserve to be treated as sinners. What happened to Jesus is is what we deserve to have happen to us. On the cross, Jesus was treated the way a sinner deserves to be treated. But loved ones, what was accomplished at the cross now is that in Christ's blood, we have been adopted into the family. That we are now called, for all those who believe in him, John chapter 1 says in verse 12, we have the right to be called children of God. John says in, in, in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Behold what manner of love that the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. He says, and so we are. We've been written into the will. So Jesus was treated the way that we deserve to be treated as sinners so that we would turn around and get treated the way he deserves to be treated as sons. You see what I'm saying? So all things are ours because we belong to Christ. We've been written into the will. Jesus' inheritance is shared with us. The only one who deserves everything is the one who created everything. Colossians 1, he he spoke it all into existence. He's upholding it. He's sustaining it. It all belongs to him, but because we belong to him, loved ones, it all belongs to us. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's life-changing. Past, present, future, everything. The world, everything in the world, everything that worry, when we think about the world that seems to be falling apart all around us, it all, it all belongs to us. We're not a victim of what the world could do to us, as scary as the world is becoming. No, no, the world, and the uncertainty about the future, like what, is gas going to be like $45 a, a liter soon? Or like, what is going on? What does the future hold? I mean, I, seriously, next time I come to Ottawa, I think we're just going to ride bicycles or something like that. I don't know what the future holds. But I know, you know, I, I know that whatever the future holds, I own it. <gasps> we own it. Because Christ owns it. 
life or death, right? I mean, if there's one thing that Christians should have been able to communicate, wherever you stood on the, on the vaccine or the masks or the lockdowns or whatever, the one thing that Christians should have been make, make, making loud and clear is that we're not afraid to die. Like that's, write it on the front of your mask. I'm glad, I'll gladly wear this in submission to the government, Romans 13, whatever. But I, I want everyone to know, I'm not wearing this because I'm afraid to die. Because I own death. Because Jesus owned death. You see what I'm saying? See what I did there? <laughs> We're not afraid to die. Because for the Christian, death is just like a door. It's just a door. I mean, I love this, this, uh, this uh, worship center. I love this, this church. I love the windows. Uh, our church, there's, there's no windows where we, where we worship. It's just, this, it's, it's just this dark room. But... At the back, there's the doors, and, and the doors make me think about death, because under the door, you can see sunlight beaming in, and I don't know, the builders just left too, too much of a gap, and, and in our church, we have this foyer with, uh, with if there's Americans, we have a foyer, but there's, we, have this, we have this foyer, and it's all window, and, and out there, there's sunlight, and sometimes there's coffee. And, and you, you, can, you can just see it. It's just, and, and loved ones, that's how a Christian is supposed to view death. That it's just a door. And there's, it's like Paul said, it would be better for me to go to be with the Lord. And because we own death. It all belongs to us. And so Paul's, Paul's saying, don't divide over Paul or Apollos or Peter because they all belong to you. You don't have to say, oh no, I follow this group, right? You don't have to decide, you know, you got the Piper group or the MacArthur group or the Kaprowski group or whatever group you have. You can tell Ray I put him in those categories, by the way. <laughs> but you're, you're missing out. You're missing out if you just say, oh no, you, you miss out on the fact that no, all of this belongs to us. Peter was a very different leader from Paul. Apollos was like next level. And yet all of them just preached Christ. They did it in different ways. Some were more eloquent, some were more forceful, some were more authoritative, some used more history or, or culture or whatever it may be, but they all preached Christ. And sometimes we need to take a step back, especially as a church plant. It's to take a little bit of a step back and is that we can't define ourselves based off who we're not. We need to remember that like Pentecostals can learn a lot from Presbyterians and vice versa. And that people that have a more traditional liturgical approach to worship can actually learn a lot from people who have a more spirit-led, free-flowing and vice versa. That people have a real reform soteriology can, can learn from someone who leans more on, on human, respons human responsibility and the Calvinism-Arminianism debate. It, it all belongs to us. The, the sovereign choice of God belongs to us. And, and the, the free choice that whosoever believes, that belongs to us too. And so we don't have to narrow our Focus. Here's a parallel cross-reference, Romans 8, verse 32, and so on, says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us 
all things. It all belongs to us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, death is a door, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It all, it all belongs to us. Let me also just recommend a, a book for you. Uh, if you're looking for something to read this summer, this is one of the best books I've read probably in 10 or 15 years. It's written by a guy named Andrew Wilson. Uh, he is a charismatic Anglican, okay? All things, all things. And uh, this is really, it's just a, it's a devotional book. And he just looks at, it's a meditation on things. Like there's a chapter on salt and viruses and mountains and rainbows. There's a, he has a chapter on pigs. And he's, he just, he, because it all belongs to us and it all has something to teach us about God. And he, he starts with the theme and then he goes from Genesis to Revelation. He weaves it throughout all of biblical theology. It's a brilliant book. Again, I don't agree with everything in the book. There's only one book I, I agree with everything on. But I encourage you, pick up this book, read. I'm pretty sure there aren't any charismatic Anglicans here. If, if, if you are here in charismatic Anglican, I'd love to meet you. But chances are, if you read Andrew Wilson, you'd be stepping outside of your, of your camp. And so I encourage you uh, uh, to do that. So don't divide over, over uh, spiritual leaders. Look, look at verse one of chapter four. He says, this is how, we should, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. He says that you shouldn't think of us as like people that we should run to, to, to say, oh, I follow this one or I follow that one. No, we all follow Jesus. And we should view these leaders as servants and as stewards of the mysteries of God. That word, uh, a servant there is really important. So is the word a steward. Let me just show you here a little bit of how Paul has been talking about this theme of leadership in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. In chapter 3, verse 5, when he was first talking about Paul and Apollos and all of this division, he said, no, we're servants. He used the word diakonos, where we get the word deacon. Uh, that, the etymology of that word is someone who, when there is, is the idea of a cloud of dust, that they're walking around, they're serving tables, and they're moving so quickly, they're, they're, there's dust behind them. They're, they're deacons, they're, they're servants. Paul says, no, 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 don't focus on us. We're just the ones like clearing the tables. I'm just a busboy. And then he used the, the, the analogy of we're fellow workers in God's field to say Paul and, and Apollos and Peter, we're, just, we're all working together. We're, we're not divided, we're fellow workers. And then there's that famous, you know, burn it up um, illustration that Paul uses with, are you going to build with wood, hay, and straw? Are you going to build with gold and silver and precious stones? And, and he used the image of, of builders, which communicated the idea of accountability, that Christian leaders are going to be evaluated on the kind of work that they, that they do. And now he uses these two terms, servants and stewards. It's translated the same in English, but it's actually a different word. Hooper uh, uh, Hooper means uh, uh, low, and uh, 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 a hooper was, remember those like Roman ships? Like I think there's one in Ben-Hur where like everyone's rowing, right? And sometimes you have them where you have like two layers of row, of, of row, row people, <laughs> use inclusive language. Um, if women want to row like that, they're welcome to. <laughs> um, and, uh, 
and the lowest rower was called the, the huperetes, like it, it's the lowest servant. And then the way the word was used in broader culture, it was sort of like, it was like an executive assistant. You know, in the, in the, um, uh, like the, the romance movies that come out at Christmas, there's always like the successful girl who's event, she's going to leave the big city and go home. You know that, you know that movie? It's the same movie like a hundred different times. So you know at the beginning of the movie that the successful woman, before she goes back home, she gets off the elevator. And who's waiting for her off the elevator? It's, it's, she's got a clipboard and a cup of coffee and then a whole bunch of appointments and a whole bunch, right? The executive assistant, right? All of those movies, the person gets off the elevator and they're greeted by the executive assistant with the latte and the cup's always empty. Why can't they just fill the cup? It would be more realistic. And they're always, they're talking about, you have a three o'clock with this and blah, blah, blah. I booked a flight for this and that and that. And there's the, and that's, that's, that's a hooperetes that Paul is saying, listen, we are, we are not the big deal. Jesus is the big deal. We're just, we're the ones like checking things off the list and, and giving the coffees. But the executive assistant has a little bit of authority, don't they? Like they, they book the flights. They create the appointments. They say, yes, you can meet. No, no, you can't. All of, so he's starting to emphasize the authority. And, and stewards, this, that, that word is oiknamos. Oik means house. Namos means law. It's the law of the house, the rules of the house, or the ruler of the house. This was a servant who was in charge of all of the other servants and all of the material that belonged in the, in the house. So... When we look at this chart, if we only focus on the first three words, oh, they're servants, they're just fellow workers, and they're builders, and it's all going to burn up anyway. And so some of us think, well, you know, we just need to kick the idea of leadership to the curb. And, uh, but Paul here in these last two illustrations says, no, no, we are servants, but there is some authority. Like, I, I, I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure how long you've been a Christian. I became a Christian when I was six years old. I, so I've been a Christian for 36 years. You can do the math. I'm old. Um, <laughs> that wasn't that funny. Come on. Um, or I'm not that old. I guess it wasn't funny. It's just that I am that old. But anyway, um, like, for the, like, for the past 15 or 20 years, I think we've seen the whole concept of pastor as master where the whole church exists to kind of serve and support the platform of like the super pastor. Like we've seen that like crash and burn a whole bunch of times. We're done with pastor as master and we need to get back to pastor as servant. But we gotta be careful that we don't serve it. We don't cause the pendulum to swing too far in the other direction. The pastor is servant, but the pastor is not the servant of the congregation. The oiknamos is, not, is, is a servant, is a steward, but not a servant of the other servant. The huperites, the, 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 the lower roseman, the executive assistant, is an assistant, but not an assistant to the congregation. It's a servant of the Lord. And yes, pastors serve their people. Yes, Ray and Kevin, the leaders here, yes, your small group leader is supposed to serve you, but you're not their master. You see what I'm saying? We all have one master, and that is Christ. So Paul says, go back to chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us. When, when Pastor Ray walks into a room, when, 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 when Kevin is, steps up and leads in some way, when your small group leader or, or the Hope Kids leader, whatever spiritual leader 
is, is, is trying to step in and lead. This is how you should regard them as servants and as stewards, but servants of the Lord and stewards of what the Lord has entrusted. So we got to make sure that we are not being deceived by worldly wisdom and that we don't divide over Christian leaders. And then lastly, we got to make sure that we don't depend on human judgment, that we don't depend on human judgment. Look at verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I love how Paul says in verse 3, it's it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. I wish that were true true of me. Do you wish that? Do you wish that the opinions of others was a small thing? Because like, let's be honest, it's normally a really, really, really big thing. So how can we be free from caring so much about what other people think about us? Paul says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, he says, I do not even judge myself. You see, the expressive individualists in our age today would be cheering Paul on in the first part when he says, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you. And because they'd be cheering that on, being like, yeah, create your own reality, do your own thing. But then Paul says, I don't even judge myself. And then then the world's sort of like, oh no, I can't agree with that. He says, Verse 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. We live in a world where the locus of authority lies within the authentic self. As long as I'm being true to myself, and I know, doesn't matter what the world thinks, doesn't matter what reality says, doesn't matter what biology says, I know what's true about me. Paul says, I don't, but he, he says, I could be in denial. I could be delusional. But he says, I'm not thereby acquitted. Look at verse four. It is the Lord who judges me. And what's God's judgment? What's God's judgment on Paul when rather than stopping people from stoning Stephen, he collected their coats so that they, he deserves the cross. Christ was treated the way we deserve to be treated. But what is the final judgment on him in light of the cross? The judgment is not guilty. The judgment is justification. Innocence. And, and when we get a sense of our own justification, when we, get it, when we really get the gospel, when we really get the cross, when we really get what happened at the cross, that changes everything. That does make what other people think about us to be a small thing. And, and it also lets us take comfort that we can't even trust ourselves in judging ourselves. So in light of this, verse, verse 5, Paul says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. This is the third prohibition. Don't pronounce judgment. Before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Here's why we shouldn't judge other people. Number one, we don't know the end of the story. It says don't judge before the time. There are some people who start really well and finish really, really badly. And there are some people who seem like they're one step away from finishing badly and they end up finishing so well. Don't judge before the time. We don't know the whole story. Don't write a person off based off how they behave on their worst day. We don't know the whole story. And then secondly, we we don't know the purposes of the heart. It says, go back to verse five. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time because we don't know how the story ends before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden. What is hidden? The things hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. 
Should Christians judge one another? The answer is yes. Keep reading 1 Corinthians 5. There's a guy sleeping with his, with his, with his mother-in-law. And, oh, sorry, his stepmother. And Paul says, you got to judge that guy because what he's doing is wrong. So are we supposed to judge or are we not supposed to judge? Well, here's, what, here's when we cross the line. We cross the line when we judge with permanent judgment. We write someone off permanently. We don't know how it's going to end for them. Secondly, we cross the line when we stop judging actions and start judging motives. Because what's hidden in darkness? It's right there. The thing that's hidden in darkness, the thing that you and I can't see that only God can see is the purposes of someone's heart. A Christian is allowed to judge something that someone does or something that someone says if someone does or says something that's clearly forbidden in scripture, but it stops there. Where we get into trouble in our relationships, marriages, hear me out. Parents, hear me out. We can only judge words and judge actions. We can't judge motives. How many relationships get broken when someone does something, says something, wears something, goes somewhere that is morally neutral. But we say, I know why you said that. I know why you're wearing that. I know why you went there. I know why you did that. The action, the word itself is innocuous. It's empty of moral significance. But if we get into the motives, we've crossed the line into a territory that's only God's. So we don't judge permanently because the final judgment is going, to, is going to be the whole story. And we don't judge motives. If we have concerns about someone's motives, and this is what we so often do, we take what would normally motivate us in that situation, and we assume that the person has the same motivation. We've we got to leave that up to God and allow him to do the judging. The greatest example of this is in the life of David. Remember when David gets anointed to be king and all of David's brothers, the sons of Jesse, are being brought before Samuel. And the first guy is Eliab. He's the big brother. He's the captain of the football team. And God tells Samuel, no, 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 no. It's not Eliab. Look what he says about Eliab. He says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's all we can see, words and actions. But God looks on the heart, right? But what we don't often don't realize is what happens in the next chapter. In chapter 17, David ends up, he's going to visit his brothers. His dad sent him to go visit his brothers at the, at, at the battle line. And Goliath is chirping all the Israelites and everyone's afraid. And then David's all of a sudden, he's like, bring it on. I, I, I beat a bear, I beat a lion, I'll beat Goliath. I'll trust the Lord. Look at what Eliab says. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Look at this. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. David's just like, I just brought lunch. That's all he did. But Eliab says, no, 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 no. I I know. That's where we cross the line, loved one. 
Romans 2 verse 16 backs this idea up about judgment. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Revelation 2 23, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. So we've got to be really careful. We're, we're welcome to judge. We're invited to judge. We're commanded to judge one another within the church. Words and actions, not motives. That's when we cross line. If you think someone's motives are skewed, ask them. Let them explain their motives. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's happening in someone's heart, the best thing to do is to ask them, why are you doing that? Why are you wearing that? Why did you say that? Why are you going there? We can't judge motives. And then the way this paragraph ends is just absolutely mind-blowing. He says, God will judge the purposes of the heart. He says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see what's happening there? We will receive a commendation from God. Now, commendation, I'm sure you didn't use that word in a sentence this week. What does commendation mean? Well, we use recommendation, right, all the time. You want, you, well, I'm new in the city, what restaurants would you recommend, right? Would you recommend that I would praise again and again? I'm praising it to you and I'm advising you, I'm commending it to you. That's what to recommend. This is something that's good. Now look what, look what the text says. Each one will receive his commendation from God. When we picture the last day, when we picture the final judgment, I mean, all of us are thinking that we're going to commend Jesus, right? Like, that's what I'm expecting to do. I'm expecting the only praise that's coming in heaven is going to be one way, us to him. But do you see what it says here? It's not just going to be one way. We're going to praise him, Jesus, crucified, lifted high. But he is going to praise us the God of all things and the God who does all things well is going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, that's mind blowing. That's what C.S. Lewis calls uh, the weight of glory. That no mortal human being could bear the weight of, of God being pleased with us. He uses the illustration of like, of like a, like a three-year-old. They're down there right now in Hope Kids, right? Right now, it's probably happening right now. Some three-year-old took four blocks and built a tower. And the leader is saying, wow, that's a nice tower, right? And what happens in that three-year-old? You can see it on their face. They can barely contain themselves that this grown-up loves what they've done, Right? And C.S. Lewis says the same thing, like, like even animals, like dogs, right? They, they, they can't get enough of us saying, good boy, good boy. You're a good boy, aren't you? That like, at the very basis of, of what it means to exist, we long to be affirmed. Don't you see that in our world today? Like it's been so twisted, right? We just long to be affirmed. Please someone just, could someone please just affirm me? It does get twisted. It does get distorted because of sin in our lives. But there's something that we see in the three-year-old and there's something deep inside of us that's, that's pure and that, 
that wants that kind of affirmation, and it's only going to come from one place. It's only going to come from one place. And it's only when we get that that it becomes a small thing if people are going to judge us or not. So loved ones, this, this is how power flows into our life. When we, don't, when we keep our eyes on the gospel and we stop thinking about worldly wisdom, we stop focusing about worldly leaders or Christian leaders, when we stop judging one another or longing for the affirmation of others and remembering that the one who does all things well will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Our heavenly father, we look to you, we love you, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we commend you now. We praise you now. We give you all the adoration and all of the glory, Lord. You alone are worthy of our praise. And yet, Lord, and yet you tell us that in that that day, you will not only receive praise from us, but that you will give praise to us. And that is a weight of glory that, that none of us can handle. But but with the knowledge of that, Lord, we can look past the wisdom of this world or the trends or the hashtags that are getting so much attention in our world. We can look past the worldly leaders that so often we want to identify with. And we can look past the judging others or, or feeling overwhelmed by the judging words of other people in our lives. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, fixed on the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would draw us very, very near to you. We pray that even now as we respond in song, that you would move powerfully, that you would speak so clearly to our hearts how we would best apply this text to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Let's stand and sing together. We're created.